This week on Life and Faith. I started very young as a paramedic. I got out of school and flew to India and worked with Mother Teresa for a while. She was still alive in Calcutta. And then I came back with Mother Teresa on my resume and joined the ambulance service as the youngest ambulance officer in New South Wales at that time in 1996. It's best to take off the table this idea that religion is just going to be summarily dismissed from all things public. She's got eight-year-olds to read 800-page books. Balance is important, though. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart, and this week we speak with author, filmmaker, adventurer, and veteran paramedic Benjamin Gilmore. Benjamin Gilmore has led an extraordinary life in many ways. He's worked as a paramedic for 26 years, mostly in Sydney, but also in far-flung corners of the globe. He's a poet and filmmaker, and we're going to be talking about his film Jirga, which was made in Afghanistan, and if you're in Australia, you can see that film streaming on SBS at the moment. Now, in a previous life, I was a teacher, and many years ago, Benjamin was a student of mine, so this was a special episode and conversation for me. Ben's book, The Gap, recounts a very intense summer working out of Bondi Ambulance Station in Sydney. There seemed to be a lot going on at that time, and we read about the drugs, the nightclubs, the brothels, the mishaps of drunk rich kids, billionaires, domestic disputes, brawls, heart attacks, emergency births. There's even a kidnapping. There's trauma, death, distress, and honestly, I was left wondering how the paramedics survive at all. Well, these days, Ben has moved further north in New South Wales, perhaps a slightly slower life. You can hear the birds in the background as we speak. And I began our conversation asking Ben what he loves most, what he finds most fulfilling about that role for not just myself, but for a lot of paramedics and and doctors and nurses. You know, it is the difference that you can make, uh, even in small ways, to people who are often having the worst day of their lives. You know, you can, um, it took me a while to work this out. You know, when I was younger, younger paramedic, I was chasing the, the more dramatic kind of moments and the big, you know, life hanging in the balance kind of situations. Um, and put a lot too much emphasis on, on on that as being what the work was about uh, and finding myself too often disappointed actually uh, with the outcomes that weren't as favourable uh, uh, and as often favourable as I would have liked. But um, I've realised over time that it's just the very small things that you can do and the differences you can make, be it a, a shot of morphine for someone in pain or breathing with someone, guiding them through some breathing to calm them down or picking them off the floor uh, where they've fallen uh, during the night uh, and giving them that kind of comfort. So for me, it's serving humanity and it's easing pain and reassurance and, and bearing witness in that moment of people's drama. And it's very clear um, when you read your book and knowing you as I do, that you're not just doing the job just to get it done. You have a deep kind of empathy for people. And I wanted to ask you, Seeing people in, as you say, extreme situations of vulnerability and stress and fear, sometimes seeing people at their worst too, but I wonder what the experience has taught you mostly about human beings. What do they need? What do they fear? What brings them undone? That type of thing. Mm. Oh, well, we all need love, you know. Humans are 
very vulnerable and we're very uh and we're emotional and we have these this you know internal emotional world that needs nurturing and needs care we want to be acknowledged we want to be seen um, we want to be accepted we want to be um held and loved and you know unfortunately a lot of patients that we come across as paramedics particularly in the mental health space and um in, in the mental illness uh were not loved enough when they were younger you know i'm i'm very interested in in attachment theory and uh how the way we were nurtured or not nurtured growing up impacts us as adults you know and i see that even in physical manifestations of emotional turmoil um over time and that past trauma you see that coming up in in physical signs and symptoms and illnesses and disease you know so you know what it's taught me about humans is that you know we need love we need care but at the same time humans have a great capacity for resilience and for overcoming mm. you know especially if we work together to achieve that end you do experience people sometimes in very violent situations and aggressive and you, you kind of cop a lot of that as a ambulance person as a paramedic did that tarnish your sense of people or how did you process all of that yeah, that's a great question no it doesn't for me um it doesn't for me because i see them even you know violent people who i come across occasionally who out, out of the blue and you know are completely unprovoked will have a swing or will you know speak very offensively um and insultingly to us we're just there to help out and we're you know, for the most part, very kind and lovely people in doing that. But I, I see those individuals as wounded children mm. uh, in adult bodies. And that, for me, triggers enough compassion or empathy uh, for these people that takes the edge off any defensiveness I might have or my willingness to throw back an insult or, you know, return the, the rudeness to them. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's about the moment I find that point of sympathy for the person and compassion for them. It really, you know, you're, you're filled with love at that moment for that individual, yeah. no matter how messed up they are and how they're presenting to you. There's a point in the book where after telling of a really quite crazy night shift in the city, the phrase you use is the job is killing us slowly. Now, I wonder what the impact of all of this has been on you personally. I can't imagine you get out of this completely unscarred from the experiences you've had. No, no, you're right. Um, and I think I've got enough self-awareness to recognise the negative impact of the job over 26 years. Uh, I started very young, like you did in teaching. I started very young as a paramedic. I got out of school and, and flew to India and worked with Mother Teresa for a while. She was still alive in Calcutta. And then I came back with Mother Teresa on my resume and joined the ambulance service as the youngest um, ambulance officer in New South Wales at that time in 1996 and very idealistic. And I, I'm glad I started off so idealistic because as, as the years have gone by, that's kind of been chipped away. But I still have enough... Uh, idealism and hope and uh, optimism about making a difference um, that keeps me going. But it does have this cumulative um, traumatic effect. You know, they speak about cumulative trauma over time. And I can't deny that that impacts me, even if it's, you know, in, in different ways. So one way, of course, is that you, um, I, 
and many colleagues I know will remember traumatic cases as we pass a, an intersection or a house or you know a park or something where there was a terrible event that occurred there that we were involved in. Um, so we have to kind of process that. And I don't think it's necessarily something that is cured. I think we have experienced those things. Um, they pop into our minds every now and then. Now you have a, a tradition in your family of rescue and care for people. And it's very clear, Ben, that you take great satisfaction from being able to offer support to people in great need. There's a history of faith in your family as well. It's not something you've pursued, but surely that's had a significant influence on you, right, from your parents and family. Oh, it absolutely has. Uh, And I am deeply grateful to uh, my upbringing and to uh, my parents um, who were and still are guided and inspired by their faith in Jesus. They are Christians. And I, you know, I recognize that the beautiful um, examples and, and lessons and wisdoms that were passed on to me and, you know, that care for humanity uh, and love for humanity and this world and also a whole range of, you know, lessons that were given to me growing up around treating everyone equally and never considering yourself above any other human being. I'm deeply grateful for that upbringing. And you say that it's something I haven't pursued. And yet, you know, I have pursued spirituality. I have been on a journey of learning and discovery and exploration of many faiths and spiritual beliefs. And I'm still on that journey. I haven't reached the end point of that journey. And I'm certainly uh, greatly inspired by Christianity and by the example of Jesus. Um, who I look up to and I think about quite regularly, even though I might not announce myself publicly uh, as being Christian. Um, Jesus is very close to my heart and I feel that I communicate with Jesus even as I go through my open-minded journey into the world and find inspiration in many, many different spiritual corners. Yes, and the spiritual life is, for everyone, it's very much a journey, isn't it? And uh it's something you've taken very seriously. And I imagine the Mother Teresa experience must have had a lasting impact on you. Well, I mean, you know, she's done terrific work in India. Uh, and, you know, she, of course, she's been criticized by the likes of Christopher Hitchens and, you know, the, the, the naysayers um, whose negativity that I really can't have never really taken to. But yeah, I mean, look, I love the way that uh, Mother Teresa led by example. I never saw her or her or the nuns that were in her order preaching to anybody. They served and they um, expressed their faith through action. That that's certainly something that inspired me. Now um, you worked in the for a time in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. You're coming out of Bondi Ambulance Station, and you note in your book that sometimes the most affluent people can be the most miserable, <laughs> and that. The pursuit of wealth seems to have come at the cost of health and spirituality and love. That was your experience there. Yes. I mean, uh, perhaps I was a little biased um, <laughs> because of my upbringing. My father was always um, you know, reminding me that true wealth is in, in the heart, you know, and in, in, in the God connection and um, in what you're giving to your fellow humans. Um 
and I, I've since read and, and followed, you know, great humanitarians and spiritual leaders who have dedicated their lives uh, to humanity um, in poverty, you know. Um, so Abdul Sata Eddy, when I was in Pakistan, he was Pakistan's greatest humanitarian and has hospitals and orphanages and ambulance services around the country. He's a kind of single-handedly, well, you know, with his followers, but um, in the 60s and 70s, he pretty much built the Pakistani health and social services. And he had two sets of clothes, you know, and I met him before he died in Karachi and all he owned were two sets of clothes. So while the other set was in the wash, you know, he'd be wearing, and he was just on the street still serving on the front lines, you know. So these are the people that really inspired me. When I was working in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, it just confirmed what I'd already come to believe. And I you know, frequently, weekly, sometimes daily, sat with very unhappy people in their mega mansions on the clifftops there at Dover Heights, you know, with these people in tears, whether it was men and women, you know, because I think a large problem was for them that they were pursuing happiness via making money. And um, that is hard work. And takes you away from the relationships you have with the people around you. You know, it can take you away from the time that you spend with your children. You know, and I'm generalising, and it's not always the case. But in so many instances, I became aware of these, prior- these priorities that were not serving these people, you know, who were who completely loaded but still were, were wanting to take their lives often. You know, I mean, I, I recount instances where people were on, on the cliff up there at the Gap who were so depressed that they wanted to end their lives despite the fact that they are worth 50 million. Yeah, there's a poverty. Poverty can appear in sort of different types of poverty, I guess, in different guises, can't it? Absolutely, you know, and it helped having travelled through a lot of low to middle income nations, you know, developing nations like, you know, India and the Philippines where, you know, you do see people and they have <coughs> they have enormous challenges, of course, but you do... Uh, see people on, you know, in in the slums, uh, in the shanties, uh, and with these smiles, these kids, and and the community they have, and you know, because for them, even with nothing, uh, their their wealth is in those connections they have with each other. And you know, I, I was really inspired by my travels to those nations. There's a really lovely, sort of sobering moment in your book where you, you talk about people in old age and reflecting on what life was, what it hadn't been, what it might have been. And you make the point that health problems are only one part of the difficulty of getting old. I wonder as you reflect on that, what kind of life would be spared the kind of meditation where you might look back with real regret? Yeah. um, One of the common observations made to me by elderly people often on their deathbed or, you know, not not far off dying when they're really reflecting on their lives is that they wish they had spent more time with their families, Hmm. with the people that they loved. And I guess this is kind of related to your previous question, you know. There's often a thought that older people have shared with me um, in in these moments that, that maybe they had, their priorities hadn't been quite right you know and that they they look back and they wish that they had 
maybe stopped working earlier or reduced their hours or not pursued certain materialistic things and rather focused on those humans in their lives that meant something to them um, and, and expressed themselves to those people. You know, I think it's sometimes it's, it's unfortunately too late for people to say what they really feel. And um, I think it's very important not to put off expressing how you feel to somebody, um, specifically referring to the expression of love. Tell those people that you love them. Tell those people whom you love that you love them. Don't wait until they're not breathing on the lounge room floor and you have paramedics trying to resuscitate them. That becomes a regret then. This is Life of Faith and I'm speaking with Benjamin Gilmore, veteran paramedic, author and filmmaker. Now change tack here and move from his work as a paramedic to other parts of his travelling life, which are not your average tourist spots, it's fair to say. Now, Ben has spent significant amounts of time in places like Pakistan, India, Bulgaria, and Afghanistan. And I wondered, what has drawn him to that kind of life? The fact they're not on the tourist trail is definitely one uh, draw card for me. (laughs) I've always wanted to get off that tourist trail and and avoid it. Um, I'm interested in people from around the world who have different upbringings, different cultures, different languages, different spiritual beliefs. I'm on a mission of learning, of discovery, and that's what it's about for me. It's about what can I learn out there? What can these people from different corners of the world teach me? And I've benefited greatly, I think, from those experiences and been so excited by what I've learned and experienced that I've wanted to share that with the world. And I guess that's where my writing and filmmaking uh, has come from. It's that desire to, you know, when you're onto a good thing, you want to, you want to share the news. I mean, you know a lot about that, you know, Um, but it's, it's similar for me. And also when you, when you see the way people in some of these countries are treated, when you witness the effects of, conflict and wars that are imposed on them when you know you see them suffering you also you know i certainly have felt the need to um go into bat for those who don't have a voice or a platform to have their voice heard so uh that's part of my work also let's talk about your film jerga which presents a complex kind of moral dilemma you have an australian soldier who's weighed down by the guilt of something he did while serving in Afghanistan. And he's seeking a kind of penance, isn't he? An an atonement. Mm. I felt like there's a universality to that story, isn't there? Oh, there absolutely is. It was only something I really reflected on after I'd shot the film was, you know, this is the story of a soldier who accidentally killed a civilian in the heat of battle in an Afghan village uh, while he was serving for the Australian military. And then after he's left the army, takes it upon himself to travel back there to find the family of the man that he uh, killed and to apologise to them and bring them some compensation. And I imagine that character, before he embarked on that journey, to be in a kind of state that so many of our former soldiers 
are in or have been in. I've certainly met them. I have met them in my work as a paramedic. This is the privilege that I've had. Um, I've met soldiers living, former soldiers living on the streets of Sydney in doorways um, who cannot function in society because of experiences they had in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, helped uh, veterans who, who have overdosed or definitely tried to take their lives. Um, that has been all too common. So I imagine this character of our film Joga being in a similar situation where, you know, he is in a downward spiral. He is possibly suicidal. Uh, and you've got to remember that um, a criminal number of our veterans have taken their own lives. It is a terrible, you know, an indictment um, of, of war, you know, and the impact of war. It says a lot about the far-reaching ripple effect of these conflicts that are often unnecessary and uh, certainly they last way too long. So um, I imagine this character, uh, character's name is Mike, being in this position where he was faced with a choice, either to take his own life, uh, racked by the guilt that was destroying him, or make a radical decision to turn this around in some way. And when this character is in, in the position where he's, he cannot live anymore, and so suddenly the idea of the risks associated with travelling back to the war zone without, you know, the backup of an army, without air cover, without weapons, you know, completely vulnerable and, you know, unarmed. You know, when he already doesn't value his life anymore because it's intolerable, what does he have to lose? So um, how that applies, I think, to other situations in, in society where people are racked by guilt, and this comes back to your question, many of us feel guilty about something that happened in the past and live with a situation in a relationship or something we've done that has, that has destroyed a relationship, be it with family or, or be it with a partner or friends, that has been unresolved and we are living with the pain of this guilt that is eating us up. There is a choice there. Quite often there is a choice there to do something about that pain, to take ourselves out of that pain, and that is through apology and forgiveness. That is through restorative justice. Now, restorative justice, I don't think... Um, should demand forgiveness, but the act of apology brings that uh, possibility to the fore and um, it is <clears throat> completed perfectly when there is forgiveness. But um, it's so tragic to me to imagine how many veterans, for example, coming back to the, the military, uh, are living in this state of torment where they cannot find joy in life anymore because of their experiences. And so Joga kind of, the intention of this film was to demonstrate that restorative justice is something that we can and perhaps should all consider within our own lives uh, about the things that we feel guilty about. Well, it's a very powerfully told story and there's a clear sense of him kind of doing this paying this price to, to do it. I mean, I know that you took huge risks making this film. You put yourselves in very dangerous situations. Is there any kind of personal, were you part of was the, the purging there, was that any part of that a personal element to it? Because, man, you were putting yourself in huge danger. I think a lot of fear is uh, irrational and exaggerated, mm. particularly around 
the humans. I was, you know, lucky to have made a film in that part of the world, Son of a Lion, previously in 2004 and 2005. It came out in 2007. And I'd live with the Pashtun people, right, in Pakistan along the Afghanistan border for 10 months to make this film. So to look at these fellows, you know, they're very tall turbans and uh, very roughly tied turbans, um, big bushy long beards, you know, with their flowing robes and in, in some areas of the tribal areas that were ungoverned by the Pakistani authorities, uh, you know, they would habitually be getting around with AK-47s and bandoliers and, you know, so heavily armed. And I learned a lot about Afghan history from these men, the Pashtuns, and I found them to be very charming, very noble, very funny, and very much connected oftentimes to their emotional world, inner world. Um, they love poetry and uh, they love flowers. And so having grown up in an Australian kind of, you know, sporting nation and uh, kind of ochre, kind of a very overtly masculine pressure that I felt growing up where I kind of suppressed a lot of my artistic leanings in growing up yeah. because it, wasn't really I didn't really feel it was accepted this was really refreshing to me to see these very brave you know warrior poets and spend time with them so I wasn't conditioned by Fox News and CNN when I see bearded men in turbans you know I, I was lucky to have actually met these people myself the Pashtuns and so when we went to Afghanistan in 2016 to shoot Jirga you know I <laughs> Also through my ambulance work, you know, I find that it's very rare that I can't connect with someone in some way. If I'm genuinely present and interested and caring and soft and caring in my approach and inquisitive about people, I can often find something beautiful and redeemable in, in just about anybody, you know. And so um, I didn't really buy into a lot of the fear that was around Afghanistan and its people and the militancy. And um, I think that was an advantage in going over there. Another part to this, is, and it was clear to me that you wanted to show this to the world, how some of Afghanistan is so breathtakingly beautiful. Absolutely. And it's not only the, the nature that is breathtakingly beautiful, it's the people and their character. Right. And unfortunately, you know, we don't often see that in the, in the news and it's a sad thing. So I, uh, in the depiction of the, the taxi driver, the Afghan taxi driver that helps uh, our protagonist to reach the village. I really wanted to, you know, reveal a little bit about the, the nature of the character of, of Afghans um, because I love the people and, um, and the country. And in terms of its natural beauty, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Taliban were so resilient in their intention to protect the nation from foreign occupation and, and uh, dominance. Uh, it's because they too of course, love their country and they see the natural beauty and they don't want it turned into an America. They don't want it, the shopping malls and the concrete and the freeways uh, through their mountains and their beautiful villages and their little streams through the, you know, orchards or fruit trees. This is the lifestyle, the ancient pre-industrialization lifestyle that a lot of Afghans who are very intelligent uh, want to preserve. How are you feeling about Afghanistan given the events of recent months? 
That's a great question. Um, it's kind of a difficult position to be in because ever since I've been writing and making films in and about the region, I have been speaking out against the occupation, against the war. I have been uh, you know, supporting uh, a resolution and I've taken the lead from my Afghan friends of all ethnicities in the country, Pashtuns, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazara. I worked with a team over there uh, who represented all the ethnicities. And what was interesting to me was they all wanted the Americans out of that country. They wanted independence. And um, although a lot of them could never have imagined that um, Taliban would take power again, but in any case, one of my female Afghan friends um, who I'm in contact with, she put it very beautifully. She said, you know, we've gained and we've lost. We've gained the removal of occupiers and the corrupt government. Um, but, you know, we've lost in the sense that, you know, now we have quite a repressive regime. A lot of the media uh, has been driven by the Afghan diaspora and, you know, the privileged Afghans in the West who, you know, were formerly from the, from the cities in Afghanistan and, and they're going to lose the most, you know, because um, they've become quite westernised. And we're going to go back in time in those cities. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But 70% of the population live in rural areas, you know, and um, the fact of the matter is a lot of them are going to sleep easier at night uh, without the fear of being bombed or droned or raided. Uh, and so it's not a black and white thing, you know. Yeah. I, I'm very much interested in nuance, but I think people can't handle nuance. People want to know, okay, is it good or is it bad? You know, is it black or is it white? Which basket am I going to put Afghanistan into, you know, the way things have turned out? And it's not like that. Now, you've had so many interesting kind of experiences and travels and horrible things happen in, in your work as an ambulance person. I want to ask you, have you remained a kind of optimistic, hopeful person? And if so, why? Uh, absolutely, I have. Um, certainly not. I'm not the way I was when I was 19 when I was, you know, the kind of save the world kind of guy. I'm a lot more realistic now. But I got to the point in Sydney and just a bit of background, I about three and a half years ago I left Sydney and I'm now working up in the Northern Rivers at a smaller ambulance station up here because I still work as a paramedic because I enjoy it. And, uh, you know, the workload is a lot more manageable uh, and the type of work's a lot more manageable. But... I got to the point of burnout in Sydney about three and a half years ago. And um, that burnout looked like cynicism. It was cynicism. It was, it was a cynical state. And um, I'm seeing that level of cynicism as a very negative thing. This has been my recent mission is to be open and to try and catch myself when I'm being cynical about life, about people. I think we still need a bit, and I certainly need a bit, at work with my colleagues because the dark humour is so important for our survival and resilience. But I think it's a killer. I think cynicism can be a real killer and it can make you unhappy. Um, so I still believe that change is possible. I, I still have hope for humanity and I still want to contribute my bit to trying to make the world a better place. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks so much for joining us today. Benjamin Gilmore's book, The Gap, 
is available in print as an ebook and audiobook. His film Jerga was Australia's submission for Best Foreign Language Film Oscar in 2019 and it won Best Independent Film at the AACTA Awards. It's streaming on SBS in Australia now. And you can learn more about Benjamin, his films, books and poetry at benjamingilmore.com. Please do tell others about this episode and about life and faith. Leave us a rating or review. It really helps us get out there to other listeners. Next week. We tried everything, different tree species, indigenous, exotic, different planting times. I read, I consulted others, I experimented, nothing worked. That was the end of the world for a young man wanting to have an impact. But I did feel that I was meant to be there. I did have this sense that it was the right place.